Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. I'm Ryan John. I'm Brendan Draper. And today we're going to do the last of that one episode that we said was going to be one episode about three different topics. And we're going to talk about strings. What made us think that we should do all three of these things in the same episode? Brendan, you can take that one. Um, well, you know, strings, choirs, horns, they're, you know, a lot of the times groups of instruments. So we thought kind of treating them in similar fashion, not exactly, but, you know, we wanted to talk about them all together initially just because they kind of, they are similar in their configuration and number of players and they occupy kind of the same, uh, same thing in a mix, you know, like the kind of big wall of sound or a pad or yeah. kind of the gel behind everything. So Yeah, uh, I, th- I, th- I think it's that the musical function tends to be kind of the same. You know, yeah. it's like this, it's a pad behind something or it's a wall of sound or it's like a focal thing. But right. when you do those things, you kind of end up doing the same thing processing wise and all that with these three groups in order to achieve those three things, you know? Yeah, it's not always that it's doing the same thing, but they have multiple functions that are similar, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure someone listening to this is going to go, dude, you guys are way off. No, they don't. But yeah. you know what? Uh, this is what I believe. And uh, you're listening to our podcast. So <laughs> what we're going take, with. I mean, take, I'd take love that. Honestly, tell us. Yeah. Tell us that we don't know what the fuck we're talking about. And honestly, on this episode, I'm going to lean on you, Ryan, because I know you've done a ton of string stuff, especially like in big venues and with lots of string players. And I've only done, you know, here and there like quartets and you know, smaller stuff, but, uh, yeah. So, well, well, yeah, I, I guess I've got a weird amount of experience with this where it's like, you know, big string sections of, uh, I don't know, anywhere from 16 to 30 players, uh, as strings in, uh, orchestra or as strings on their own or as strings in a giant rock band. And then also I've done a bunch of, you know, quartetty things where it's, you know, four string players where it's, only four string players or mm-hmm. four string players and an acoustic and a vocal or four string players where their intent was to make it sound like 60 string players and they're behind a giant rock band. And obviously it doesn't work that well. <laughs> so fun. I've done a bit of all of those, you know? Yeah. So, so should we, I, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, should we talk about like solo versus group first? Yeah, I I guess that is the first question, right? Like, what is your intent with what you're doing in that specific musical project, Mm -hmm. right? Do you want the strings to be solo instrumentalists that stand out, or do you want them to feel like a group? And uh, often, you need both, right? So Mm -hmm. in in the gig I'm prepping for right now, uh, there's one cello player that is specifically the lead cello. Mm -hmm. And... In certain pieces and certain songs, that cello needs to feel like a lead instrument. But the entire rest of the time, that cello needs to fit into the group of strings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that obviously gets kind of interesting, right? Because using uh, you know the same input, the same mic and all that, in order to go from something that kind of is like you know sitting back to something that is standing out, there's mm-hmm. quite a bit of change you have to do to that channel. You know, it might be EQ, yeah. it might be compression, it might be, you know, reverb amounts. Um, it could be any of many things. <clears throat> Is that so, something you're, you're achieving with like different <coughs> snapshot settings? Uh, no, I'm, I'm too lazy to change that many things at one time 
Hmm. Uh, especially if on each day of show, I'm going to want them to be a little bit different because maybe, I don't know, mm. it's a warmer or more humid and the instrument sounds different and I need to move the EQ around. Mm -hmm. So rather, I would just duplicate that input to two different channels. Mm -hmm. And one channel is the, you know, cello in the group. The other channel is lead cello. And it's the same input going to both. Or in the context of this specifically, actually, we're using uh, clip-on mics for the group right so that mm -hmm. that cello has got a 4099 clipped onto it you know in, in that bridge that 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 dpa bridge clip mm -hmm. but when it goes to solo that's actually a completely different uh pickup system it's an eap i don't know if you've ever heard of this have not uh, it's a i actually this is going to sound hilarious i was watching the hans zimmer live in prague thing on netflix or 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 uh, Amazon or whichever one it's on. It's, it's amazing. So if you've never seen it, it's great fun. It's cool. It's over the top. It's cinematic. It's fun. But in that video, I was like, what is that little triangle thing stuck on the cello? What the hell is that? <laughs> and I, I like paused it at exactly the right spot, zoomed in with my camera on my phone, took mm -hmm. a photo and sent it to like 20 people. I was like, tell me what this thing is. I've never seen this before. Because I tried <laughs> looking it up. Little triangle pickup on a cello and nothing came up. Uh, turns out two or three people were like, how do you not know what this thing is? It's an EAP system from Erland. And I'm like, I don't, I've never even heard of Erland. What is it? What are you talking about? You're making stuff up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's a contact pickup. That's this tiny little triangle. And you basically put like a little bit of tack on one side and you attach it to whatever instrument you're trying to amplify. Hmm. It's, I guess, sold as a guitar pickup system. And for theoretically, I guess, yeah, for acoustic guitar, I guess theoretically yeah. you could just stick it on an acoustic guitar. But I saw it in this video and I was like, you know what? The uh, cello in this sounds awesome. So if that's actually how they're capturing it, which maybe they are, maybe they're not, I can always, you know, send Colin a message and be like, is, are you actually using this or is this all playback? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I saw that and I was like, I want to try it. Uh, I found one on the internet, bought one and I tried it out and I was like, wow, this actually feels incredibly direct. Um, so it actually feels like a naturally sounding DI. So it, that gives you that solo feeling of like, yes. just like the, the clarity and the presence rather than the Yeah, mic. there's like, there's, you really get a lot of nuance out of it that I didn't expect you were going to get out of it. Hmm. Now, mind you, you know, cellos, anytime you mic them up or whatever, they always feel a little bit boxy, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I imagine you've never pulled up a cello and been like, this, this feels perfect. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, especially so with the pick, like it's the same the cheaper with pickups. Yeah, it feels weird. Yeah, it's the same with this. It's it's a little bit boxy, but it seems to mm -hmm. take EQ really well. So, anyways, back to the topic, though. Um, so, instead of taking a single input and duplicating it to this kind of, you know, in the group cello sound and yeah. the solo cello sound, what I did was, or what we've prepared to do for this coming up gig is to use this contact pickup to run as a solo channel mm -hmm. and then the microphone to run as the group and the reason cool. we're doing that is because there's mics on all the other strings and it's the same mic type and all that so it should mm -hmm. feel like it would fit in a little bit better because it is a similar type of capture situation for all of them yep. and since it's not literal contact you've got a tiny bit of distance between the microphone itself mm -hmm. and the sound source. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not much, but there's a little bit, and it's just enough to make it feel a little bit more natural. 
Nice. So that contact pickup then runs down its own channel and that gets kind of EQ'd and treated like it is mm -hmm. a solo instrument. So at no point are both of those faders up. It's either one or the other. That's awesome. <laughs> and yeah, if you don't have a second input, just duplicate the channel and then right. process them different, right? And just right, exactly. You know, yeah, that. process one as a solo instrument, maybe a bit of a mid-range boost, maybe a little bit less reverb. Mm -hmm. The group one, you know, maybe a little bit scooped and maybe a little bit more reverb, right? Do, I mean, that's the, run, that's the easy way to say it. Question, do you run that solo one to the group of strings? Like your group I don't, it, it goes around that. Around that, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But but I guess we can get to that as, as we kind of get to routing and stuff. I feel like we've jumped well ahead already, haven't we? Sure. Yeah. I mean, but that was a fun, that was a fun discussion. I think that's going to, that's, that's, that's a good tip, like for a lot of different things, you know, that could help with the horns and the choir and all that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I, I, I hope we said this during choir, but like one of the things that comes up for me a lot when doing choir is that we'll have a bunch of singers in the choir, but then a handful of them come up and do solo parts. Solos, yeah. And when they do that, you're in exactly the same scenario we're talking about here, where like your your EQ and your effects and all your processing for the choir to sit into this group is very specific. But then when you want that player to stand out from the group and be a solo instrumentalist, yeah. you have to kind of process it differently. You push it in the places where you've been pulling it Um in that kind of background group and you know mm -hmm. less verb and a little bit more direct sounding and a little bit more kind of clarity mm -hmm. and the easy way to do that is to duplicate that channel and to duplicate that channel and have it not go to your group processing or anything like that and have it be treated like it's a lead vocal right um yeah yeah i mean nice that's something yeah. i do with choirs all the time that's awesome <laughs> And well, I do I the same thing with horns too, actually. <laughs> you know, if you get like a sax solo in the middle of a thing, even though otherwise the, the saxophone is meant to be kind of like, you know, this brass group, right. uh, I treat it the same way. Makes sense. That's why we thought we could do all three of these in one episode, but here we are. Uh, Great. Now we're done. Bye. <laughs> just, list, just listen to the other episode and just in your mind, replace strings with horns or whatever. Anyways. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, how about like as a group? How are we going to achieve clarity, size, and depth in <coughs> strings? So this one's a little tough, right? Because we're talking about treating strings as a group, which is almost like it's one instrument, right? It's mm -hmm. almost like when you got a keyboard player and they pull up a strings patch and they hit that nice big chord. Yeah. That's treated like one thing, right? Mm -hmm. You just get you know a left and right of that. So in order to achieve that same kind of workflow-ish, what you ultimately need to do is take all those individual inputs and stem them into something that you can treat as a single input. Yeah, so right? like a so, stereo, stereo group. Right, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what that means then is that each of those individual instruments, you know, you will EQ for kind of corrective type of EQ, right? So I'll pull up that first violin and be like, okay, cool. This is a little bit honky in like, uh, I don't know, 700 to 900. Take out a bit of that. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I also always seem to find that there is this kind of, bitiness isn't the right word, but there's like the sound of the bow going across the strings can sometimes feel aggressive. Like, like nails on a chalkboard. Ish. Yeah, yeah. It it almost yeah. literally. Yes. I mean, you it's kind of chalk. Feel it's it's like chalk scraping. rubbing against metal, right? Because <laughs> yeah, there's like the, resin. the rosin, I guess. Yeah, the rosin. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Stuff. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and that sound is very unpleasant. Um, yeah. And that sound tends to be 
to me, what makes a, uh, a cheap instrument sound cheap mm. is, is really that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to be honest, I'm not a, a violin or a viola or cello player. I'm not a player. I don't know how to play that well. And maybe that's actually a thing that the player themselves can play in a slightly different way in order to get that to kind of smooth out. But mm -hmm. even with really great players with a really great instrument, I tend to find that there's something in between, let's say, 1.2 and 3K. Mm -hmm. Something narrow there that if you can take out a little narrow cut, it mm -hmm. suddenly smooths it out. Mm. And that happens for me on pretty much every single one of the smaller string instruments. Smaller mm. meaning, you know, viola, violin. Mm -hmm. uh, tends to be less of a thing with cellos for me. So usually I'm trying to pull out some of that, you know, boxiness, honkiness. And then I'm usually trying to pull out a little bit of that aggressive kind of nails on a chalkboard sound out of the, the, mm -hmm. the bow on the strings. Mm -hmm. um, Which, I, I assume we high pass the heck out of it. Uh -huh. Sorry, what were you about to say? I was about to say like, you know, like, I guess if you were using a dynamic EQ on the group bus, could you kind of notch it in that spot and you get could the same result or would it not be as precise? <laughs> um, I guess. So you could. First off, each instrument is going to do it slightly differently, right? right? Um, especially between violas and violins. True. Like those two seem to do it in slightly different places. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not a player that can play this instrument well, but I have an assumption that part of the technique of the way it's played is also part of what makes this. So that then means each player is also going to do it slightly differently, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd rather correct that uniquely per instrument. And then... Um, after kind of doing this corrective stuff on each of these instruments and high passing the snot out of them. Mm -hmm. um, hold on, before we jump to this kind of getting to the group, high passing the snot out of it. Um, high, when we, when we talk like about high this, passing up to its fundamental or its lowest note? Uh, not necessarily. And, and this is where we kind of need to break for a second. Mm -hmm. This, your choice for where you high pass here is dependent upon what you're actually doing. If you're sticking strings in inside of a you know a big rock mix, you're going to high pass a heck of a lot higher. Yeah. If you're doing strings only, or you know orchestra only, or strings in a piano, or strings in an acoustic, like things where strings can take up more of that space, mm -hmm. you will do exactly what you just described. You know, high pass up to the fundamental, high pass up to right. where you start to feel that you're losing some of the body of the instrument, mm -hmm. right? But if you're trying to stick this into a dense mix where there's a lot of other stuff going on that's taking up a lot of space, mm -hmm. well, in that context, what you're going to hear of the strings in the mix is not going to be the bottom of it. You're not mm -hmm. going to hear that like mm -hmm. 100 to 250. That's going to get taken up by some high gain Kick. guitar. Guitar. Yeah, or, you know, just these other things. Mm -hmm. But where you will hear the strings is that upper mid-range. And maybe, you know, some of that, you know, 500 to 900 range where like the note actually starts to poke out. Hmm. So that's, that's where you can get away with high passing a lot higher. And when I say a lot higher, I mean like you could be three, 400, you hmm. could be pretty, pretty high up there, gotcha. but it depends on the density of the mix. If the mix is really dense, you're probably going to go higher. If the mix is less mm -hmm. dense, you're going to go lower. Um, now to the point of a scenario where you might have moments where it needs to feel like big full strings and mm -hmm. other moments where it needs to sit in a mix. In that case, do it on the group. 
Right. That way you can so change then, it easily. Yeah, exactly. So then you can quickly change it in one go. So mm-hmm. what you'll then do is high pass your strings to maybe just above the fundamental-ish, you know, so that each individual string, you know, fills in and fills out appropriately. Mm-hmm. But when you want to put it into the mix on your strings group, you high pass again, you know, pretty high, mm-hmm. maybe kind of scoop out some space, get that upper mid-range to poke out a little bit. Right. Um, Makes a lot of sense. And then when you get to like a section of the song or a section of the set where the strings need to feel big and full and lush again, you just bypass that high pass on the group. And now you got all the fullness of the strings, but none of the actual garbage in the bottom because you've done that on the individual string uh, inputs. Does that make sense? sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So, so back to clarity, size, and depth. The clarity comes from, you know, you kind of cleaning up the garbage in each of the individual instruments. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of blend those into this group. Now, I do pan things out nice and wide. Um, I don't do actual orchestral panning, which is, you know, panning to match the position on stage. I don't mm. do that. Uh, and I don't do that because what I'm, well, okay, if I was mixing an orchestra, I would, and that would be appropriate. <laughs> but what I'm about to work on is not just orchestra. It's supposed to be bigger than life and all that. Right. So, so you, what I'm trying to do is the same kind of thing you do with like, you know, big guitars. You go really wide and try and make it sound gigantic. Mm-hmm. And you you go left, right, left, like violin one, left, violin two, right, violin three, left, violin four, right, that kind of thing. So you have both on both on both yes, sides. as as long as I know that one and two are always paying the same, playing the same part, gotcha. and three and four are always playing the same part, because you don't want one part hard left and one a different part hard right. Right, yeah. right? Now mm-hmm. violins tend to be grouped in sections where the entire section is playing the same part, exactly, right? Yeah. So you've got you know violins one, violins one tend to be all playing the same part. Violins mm-hmm. two tend to be playing all the same part. You can kind of get away with left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And then violins too, left, right, left, right, left, right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you've got smaller sections, they tend not to be doing that. When you've only right. got four players, they're not normally doing that. So you can't get away with that kind of silly stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so you, you do all that panning and then feed that into the group. Now, that gives you kind of your, your, your total violins, if you will, or your total strings. Now, mm-hmm. when it comes to things like size and depth, uh, your, your sheer number of players gives you some of that size. The amount mm-hmm. of frequency content you're taking up gives you some of that size. But I will be honest, your reverbs make up a huge amount of that size. Mm-hmm. Um, on strings, I will 100% of the time use at least two reverbs. Mm-hmm. One of them, and, and I think we talked about this in horns and choir too. Yeah. It's the exact yeah, we, same thing. We touched on this both times, yeah. So one of them is a room to give it this kind of little bit of space it's not about making it feel long and legato and like it's a giant hall but it's about making it no longer feel like it basically a di coming out of an instrument that's not a natural way to hear it so the amount of this that i'll put in is a lot higher than you think it should be um it's probably 50 50 direct and 50 50 uh this room reverb Mm. And that room reverb is under one second in length or about one mm-hmm. second, maybe 900 milliseconds to 1.1, somewhere mm-hmm. right in that range. Yeah, I mean, that's and still usually, pretty notice- That's noticeable for sure. It's, it's enough, yeah. But I mean, yeah. if you put a string in a room, you're going to hear it for about a, you know, a little under right. a second anyways, if, especially if it's a nice sounding room. Mm-hmm. And I've been fortunate enough to be in a lot of really, really nice studios where we've actually recorded strings. Mm-hmm. And the best sounding studios I've heard for strings are ones that aren't bright. 
but are rather like very kind of woolly and wooden sounding mm-hmm. where it's like mm-hmm. low mid and, and mid range mm-hmm. and the top end of the strings isn't bouncing around. Mm. So what that has kind of taught me in string reverbs is I actually like my string room reverbs to be kind of rounder and not mm. very bright. <clears throat> so obviously we don't need anything, you know, in the hundred Hertz and below range. Like mm. there, it just, it just isn't there even on cellos and all that. It's just, just ignore it. So, you know, for, for those reverbs, high pass it somewhere there. Yeah, uh, well, you, you, you like band pass into the reverb too, like from, the yeah, I'll, I'll usually band pass into the reverb and EQ the reverb return. Mm-hmm. So on the way into the reverb, I want to make sure that none of that shrilly, uh, uh, bow sound is going into that reverb because it's going to just make gross stuff come back. Mm -hmm. So I might take out a pretty gnarly scoop in that, let's say 2K to 3K range, 2.5. Let's just say it's there. A pretty gnarly scoop there so that you don't end up with tons of that string noise. Mm -hmm. Uh, String noise isn't the right way to say it, but you know that bow noise and that scraping sound. Mm -hmm. But instead, what you're sending into that reverb is a lot of the, the actual core note and mm-hmm. it's potentially a lot of that boxiness that you've potentially EQ'd out, but that's actually where the note is, you know, so that like 500 to 700 range. Now your that, reverb from that is going to generate some top end that comes back. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're about to say something. I was going to say that that lower mid reverb kind of gives it that like bigger sound, you know, like yeah. it gives it kind yeah. of that like size. Yeah, exactly. And what you're getting away with there is that your top end an actual real string bow clarity is coming from the inputs and then the rest of the kind of thickness is coming from some of that reverb return so you're really thickening up like the bottom half but your actual like real kind of it's almost like you know the 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 lip sounds of a vocal you know that that Mm -hmm. uh all the consonants and all that stuff come from that top end the detail a lot of the detail for the string playing comes from those, you know, bow sounds and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to smudge those too much by putting a short reverb that sits on top of that. Does that make sense? Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, then what, yeah, go ahead. And then for your, what's happening with your second reverb? Is that your longer, like... And, and this, the second of... reverb is the long one. It's the one mm-hmm. that makes it feel really smooth and legato. It's usually a hall. And it's usually a hall that is somewhat similarly treated on the send, you know, take out some of that top end. I don't want too much brightness, but on the halls, that top end tends to feel kind of airy and nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you do want some top end in there, but you potentially don't want that top end to sit in that, you know, two to three K range. You actually maybe want it to sit above that mm-hmm. um, so that you get this kind of feeling of air and brightness. Now that, you know, you can ride that in and ride that out for different parts of different songs. Again, if you got a super dense mix, you're probably going to pull back some of this reverb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you get to strings only or, or you know, a yeah, little bit yeah. more kind of orchestral style only, you could put this stuff back in. Sorry, yeah, like on the outros, you know, like if it's just strings or something like that with the vocal on top at the end of a song and then just like um, kind of yeah. crank that reverb up and then crank the tail, you know, make the tail super long and stuff like that. That's That's always fun. Yeah. And, and these are the things you can do to make things feel intimate and then feel kind of, um, I don't know, larger than life. You know, writing these things up and down. You have a lot of control of what it feels like, even more so than what it sounds like. I mean, yes, it's about what it sounds like, but the feeling you get out of hearing it 
is absolutely controlled by some of these details. Now that said, both those reverbs go to that strings group for me. And then that strings group itself gets kind of like, I don't know, master bus processing, if you will, meaning like a mastery cue that maybe mm -hmm. cuts out a little bit of the low end, a little bit of space to leave vocals in there, or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, on the individual instruments, and I think this is the same of what we said for horns, I do compress them a tiny bit, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, 1.2 to 1, so that just you just reduce the dynamic range a little, a little bit. bit. Mm -hmm. not, yeah, not a ton. And then on the group, I might have another compressor that's sitting there and it tends not to be digging into it much at all because again, we want to keep the dynamics of these instruments and yeah. all that, but it, it is there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We don't want to so, crush it, but we want to control it. Yeah. So what about when you've done strings? I, Cause I know you've done some smaller string stuff. I mean, am, am I in yeah. a different place than you or are you kind I of mean, feeling yeah. the same for what you've done? The, the, the thing is that when I did it was like, years ago like four seems like well definitely before the pandemic now so it's been like five years maybe and i feel like i just like didn't really know what to do at the time because i had like a band playing with strings and i kind of just let let them be which is probably not like the worst strategy because i didn't want to like overdo <laughs> it on them yeah. but you know uh i just like was like, oh, I'll just like keep them as natural as possible. And I probably didn't really have the, because they were using just pickups, right? We didn't have four, 4099s or anything like that. So I, I just, I don't think like my ears were kind of like attuned to like the directness of the, of the, the pickup and like how that doesn't sound as natural as like, you know, a mic or if I manipulate it to like add some like room sound to it. So, I mean, I think when I was doing that, I was, I was probably just, grouping them and like compressing a little bit and then like sending to a, a little bit of reverb. And that so, was pretty so much to it. that point where you yeah. are now looking back on those things, let's assume that we've got a listener that is about to hit strings for, I don't know, the first or second time. What bits of information do you think you could give effectively yourself from that time now to get a kind of better result or have even just more confidence in your result. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, try and give, give each instrument, like even if they're just using pickups, try and like make it sound like a little more natural with using that room reverb technique and, and like just a light touch with the compression on each channel. And then like, don't if it's like a quartet you know i think that's what i had and i was probably like spreading it all spreading it all around behind the rock band like panning wide with like two strings or two two violins a viola and a cello and i would say maybe just keep it more like more centered so that like both like everywhere in the venue can hear the whole group together you know right um or like duplicate it and like pan them wide and delay one side slightly but I, I honestly i haven't like tried that with like a string quartet and it might mm -hmm. work in the context of with the band but when they're if there's parts where it's by themselves that might not be as good sounding so so, so you know it's it's funny you say that because i have tried that and it's uh -huh. worked sometimes and been awful other times mm, interesting and when does it work and that's <sighs> like when they're playing like the same thing basically when all the players are playing the same thing 
mm-hmm. or you know an octave off or something like that it yeah. seems to work okay it kind of fills it out pretty well uh, especially if the mix is dense but yeah. you know to your point the moment the mix gets kind of light or the moment individuals are kind of playing quite different stuff it kind of falls apart quite quickly yeah um what i have found that does work reasonably well is effectively that that room reverb trick um i run that send in stereo and i run the return in stereo right Mm -hmm. so if i've got a violin panned hard left uh and it sends to my room reverb i have that send also going hard left right and it returns to both sides because that's just how reverbs work but it's as if it was you know kind of to the left of the room what i have done is duplicated that whole setup so one room reverb is somewhat natural second room reverb is duplicated that was flipped left right mm-hmm. and had an extra delay on it mm. so it was actually a completely separate instance of reverb mm-hmm. um, where the left and right were swapped Switched. before the reverb Gotcha. So that the reverb kind of generated something different. And that had, I think it was maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 milliseconds of delay on it. And that was blended in. And that actually worked way better because it was kind of more natural and roomy sounding than mm-hmm. doing the direct inputs and doing this Haas effect panny delay thing. Mm, yeah, that, that's cool. That's cool. So it's, it's like Haas effect on reverb. Yeah, Haas effect on a reverb return. But again, you know, nowadays, the way I use the reverb on strings is that it is 50% of the sound of the string. Right. Um, because it's a room reverb. It's not, you're not hearing a long tail. You're hearing the sound of the string in a room. Gotcha. So what it's kind of doing when you're doing the Haas effect thing with that is that now you've got the strings kind of direct, but then you're hearing somewhere else in the room is another gotcha. string player that's feeling like it's a little bit farther away. So it actually right. feels like you get this like kind of layer of depth as well. It, mm-hmm. it seems to work quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, cool. I haven't had to go back to doing that in a while. So I can't say this is a proven technique that absolutely works, but I have mm-hmm. done it once or twice and it seemed to work way better than just doing a standard Haas effect, um, you know, trick. Dry, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, dry. Um, I was going to say, well, actually, we're at 30 minutes, just FYI. But um, the other thing, like... I've been in situations where I've been doing sound for a church and like they wanted a violin player and all they had were like 57s basically left. And I don't know if that can ever work. Like they're good. They move around way too much. So I'm just want to put that out there. Like if you're limited on your, your mic situation, like, I don't, I don't know. I, it just is bad to like put it up on a stand above their head. Cause they're just like moving all around all the time or like, you know, talk to them and tell them, you know, if, this if, mic your is environment is, if your environment is really, really quiet and that's one of the only things going on, you can maybe then, get away with yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. But if there's dr- like, I was in a situation with drums and guitar and bass and stuff, it's like, it's game over kind of, unless yeah, you, they're going to stay right in one place. Yeah. That's not going to work well, but you know, yeah. what I would then do is say, Hey, um, w- was this in a church by the way? Yeah. Okay. I- I'd say, Hey pastor, give me your lavalier mic and you can have the 57. Oh. That's and I'll smart. clip the lav right off, yeah. right off the, the yeah, violin. There you go. There you go. That's smart. That's smart. And I'll be like, great, cool. Um, also, I don't know if pastor is the right term, um, but I think it is. I'm, I, I mean, don't. That know. is a term for someone. Who I, po- I apologize if I'm saying this incorrectly. I just I don't know. But uh, lavalier mics actually can work quite well on string instruments. Um, yeah. 
So if you're in a pinch and you really want to get something that works and will, you know, follow the instrument, I mean, as Brendan just mentioned, when the player is moving around and you got a stationary mic on a stand, it's not the greatest. Um, yeah. I like stationary mics on stands when I've got players sitting down and I know that the entire rest of the environment is quiet. Yeah. Uh, then it's great. You know, you don't have to do that room reverb trick as much because you actually have some physical distance between the instrument and the microphone. So you already are capturing some of that room, you know? Right. That makes sense. Yeah, especially if it's quiet. Yeah, especially when it's quieter. Like, that's great. So so let's talk about monitoring here. Uh-huh. Um, you know, wedges, IEMs, bleed, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your experience with strings and monitoring? Uh, it can be tricky. It can be tricky. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of the same thing as like, with a quiet vocalist, like you gotta, if you're using wedges with mics, like you gotta get up there and ring them out and just make sure there's nothing that's gonna pop up. Um, I mean, that's kind of just saying how to do monitors, but <laughs> go back to that episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh... I'd say if you're, if you're unfortunately in the scenario where you're using wedges, you kind of almost have to treat each of those string instruments like an acoustic guitar, right? Because they're going to have a resonance and they're going to want to ring at that resonance. So you're going to end up finding out what that resonance is and you're going to have to EQ the snot out of it to get rid of that. Now that said, um, mics on string instruments and then wedges. Uh, Strings aren't particularly loud instruments anyways. So you stick wedges there. Now you've just kind of made a mess of what you're capturing yeah. uh it's not ideal so yeah. if you have the option use in-ears or mm-hmm. no monitoring at all um a lot of the string players i deal with if it's you know orchestra on its own there is no monitoring anyways um mm-hmm. if they got True. anything they're just getting click track and some other conductor track going to one ear piece and only one uh oh if if it is like a bigger section and they do need in-ear monitors and you don't want to like obviously do like a whole like a shit ton of wireless i mean you could um have one wireless transmitter and like multiple packs sync to the same frequency or if you want to hardwire it and it's not going to be a total pain in the ass like threading cables through everything you could get one of those like eight channel headphone splitters and just like duplicate duplicate the signal everywhere you know yeah um, yeah yeah um i've definitely do- i've definitely done stuff like that before yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that is a good point you know even though you may have you know six players 10 players 12 players you don't need 12 mixes necessarily you just need Probably 12 not. packs yeah yeah i mean yeah. in in some scenarios you would but in in the largest scale scenarios of this most of these players do not get an individual mix um, you know, you may have a violin's mix, a viola's mix, a cello's mm-hmm. mix. Um, but even that, that's quite generous uh, as compared to how this usually goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, ideally in-ears. And um, when you build an ears mix for a player, you're probably going to do something similar to what we were talking about before anyways you're probably going to eq out some of that honkiness and you're probably going to add a bit of room into it because when you're in front of the instrument and you're listening to it that player themselves they don't hear the same kind of honkiness that that microphone does um it's just not there um so you're going to try and make it sound like it sounds from you know about a foot in front of it 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm curious to like actually talk to some string players about like it, what it feels like to have, if they want the whole mix in their ears or not, you know, cause I haven't done any, I guess not since that, that gig I was talking about with the quartet, have I had string players on ears, but like, I'm curious, like what string players in a huge orchestra who have to be on ears want to hear, you know, do they want to hear the whole orchestra or like, you know, I'll, I'll ask them in a week. Um, cool. I'm not doing monitors on that gig. I mean, we've got two separate monitor engineers for that. So, mm. um, yeah, Danny. it's, it's going to, yeah, yeah. It, we've got a, an orchestra monitor mixer and we've got a band slash Danny, uh, monitor mixer. It's, honestly, nice. it's just cause it's too many people. It's 65 people on stage yeah. oh, or something yeah. like that's, that. That's, that's too much. <laughs> um, but you know, that's a, that's a good point. And I know some of the string players, so I, I will ask them and ask them what they like to hear and how they like this to normally go. I think it would be interesting to chat through. Yeah, sweet. That'd be cool to follow up on. So, um, I guess before we go, let's let's just poke at one of the other tools that I always like to use, which is Dynamic EQ and multiband comps yeah. and stuff. Sweet. So, Dynamic EQ on strings for me um, tends to be for note buildup. When string players go to kind of lower notes, you often get kind of this buildup of this low mid-range that is some of that honkiness. So yeah. I will often take a dynamic EQ on the group and center it in that range. Uh, I don't know, let's say 400 and mm -hmm. have it sit there able to take out up to three dB. But usually mm -hmm. you're only going to go, you know, dB and a half down when it starts to build up there. Yeah. And then at the same time, do something in that kind of uh, bow sound range, you know, that mm -hmm. upper mid range. Mm -hmm. uh, so that if everyone's kind of doing these, you know, quick stabs, you don't want the bow sound to to build up and poke out too much. So like same psycho. kind of thing. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You don't want it to sound like psycho. And then separately, I also tend to, if this is a dense mix, uh, have a dynamic EQ that takes out some of the mid-range keyed off of whatever the lead instruments are. So if it's a lead vocal, whenever the lead vocal is singing, it's taking out a bit of 700 and a little bit of 2.5 from the strings as a whole just to get them out of the way. Just and that's a trick that we've talked about many, many times. Yeah. When you're doing the mid-side mode, right? And you just take it out in the middle. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's also part of why I like panning things, you know, pretty hard out. Um, because, you know, the reverb also kind of brings it back to the middle. It doesn't feel like it's all the way out because the reverb's kind of bringing it back anyways. Hmm. Yeah, and we talked, I guess we kind of talked about that on the keyboards episode about why it's important to have it be stereo for your vocal in the center. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, so, you know, not to not to kind of poke at these things we've poked at so many times in the previous episodes, but in general, the ideas about what you do with strings are quite similar to the ideas about what you do with choir and quite similar to the ideas about what you do with horns. Mm -hmm. um, and you just lean on the players being good players. Um, so, <laughs> you hope. Back, back to this thing of, though, this might be my first strings gig or this might be one of the first times I've got someone on strings, you know, is there anything else that you feel like should be said? Oh, for someone mixing for the first time, like doing a show yes. with string yeah, players yeah, yeah. for the first yes. time. Sorry if I, if I uh, made that super vague. <laughs> no, I was like, what, what am I supposed to tell the violinist? Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I would say like, think about like stage position and see what you can get away with to like make it better for you out there. Like meaning, meaning put the string players in quieter parts of the stage. 
Yes. Yeah. See what you can what you can do in that arena because that's going to make a big difference. Um, let's see. That, that's a great point. Yeah. And also, I think th- you know what? Have conversations with your string players because mm-hmm. if this is your first time doing a gig with strings, it's definitely not their first time doing a gig with strings. So yeah, it's also ask them like, how does someone normally mic this up? You know, what do you normally get? What what does it normally sound like? Because they all have done this before, and they all have either had good experiences, bad experiences, somewhere in the middle. But at least asking the question, you know, creates a rapport and helps you kind of start to get along with this player in a more trusted way. Yeah, it's it's good to like really communicate with the string players too, because especially if it's like a gig where it's like rock band plus strings, and they're coming in, like they might not have done shows with a band before this and they're like they're nervous right they're they, and they know it's not gonna they might not be the focus you know so it's kind of nice to you know pay, like give them their due and like make sure they feel taken care of you know like i that's a great i, I don't point. know if i did that exactly when i was doing this first gigs but and there was like one string player who i like just didn't really get along with. And I just kind of realized over time that it was just because they were like in such a new situation that they were like kind of treating me like holding back or whatever, or like, or just like being very snappy and like, like, uh, what's the word? Like having like a seeming to have a bad attitude, but I think it was just because they were like really not used to that situation of like playing with a band and all that. That, So that, that's a good point. Well, nice, man. I, I think that kind of covers all the important stuff to, to dig into there. Um, yeah. So I think that closes up our channel by channel season. We did it. It only took three years. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know when the first episode of this was, but it was, it was oh a long God. time ago. I feel like I'm older. I, f- I feel like let's not look back and find out. Let's just keep keep going forward we're gonna keep doing episodes yeah i mean it's just like i had a kid over the last year so that kind of like took up a lot of my time and it was kind of hard to get back in the the rhythm of doing these but um yeah i get it at least i get it yeah no it it got hectic it got hectic yeah yeah so thanks for listening and um i believe the next episode you hear is going to be part of season three which is going to be a totally different format in that we are going to do a lot of listener questions. Um, I think hopefully we get some guests in. We'll talk about specific pieces of gear. Talk about some of the interesting stuff we've worked on. I don't know. Yeah, I think we might have a section where we just like kind of catch up and talk about shows that we've done recently and all the things we learn. You know, new things we learn on them. And it would be nice. It would be on. nice to do an episode with Joe again. I miss his beautiful voice. I know. I miss Joe too. Like he's been that touring guy, so much. He's just Fuck. been too busy. He's just been too busy kicking too much ass. He needs like a mobile podcasting rig, you know? But You know he could very easily do that. I know he could. Like, <laughs> this fucking guy. This Anyways. fucking guy. All right. Well, we'll we'll try and get Joe back for season three. And um, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll yeah. catch you on the next one. Brendan, what are all the things they need to know? I know oh, there's a new email. We need to, yeah, uh, livesoundpodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can get in touch with us right now or go to Facebook, join the Live Sound Bootcamp group. We'll probably get something, maybe we'll get get things more cohesive in the future, um, but that's where you can go right now, especially the Facebook group. There's a lot of people on there 
talking about you know all their their experiences and asking questions and it's really fun to go interact with people on there so it's I'd it's really cool actually to go yeah. on there and like read some of the stuff that people have said yeah I mean, ryan's on there responding to people all the time i'm on there lurking just looking and seeing when i'm gonna pop in and out um so he's just yeah. waiting for me to say something dumb so you can make fun of it <laughs> angry face uh okay cool i think that's it um also it looks like we first did an episode in march of 2020 so that means we are at three years wow that's wild that is wild. And it's also wild that we've had a hundred thousand listens of this podcast. That is so crazy cool. to me. So cool. uh, and it's like kind of humbling. I don't I don't know the word for it, but it's it's so cool to me that it's people really like this and people listen to this. And I hope as a result of this, uh everyone does better shows. Yeah. And All right. more what were you about to say? I was about to. Interrupt I was just say, and uh, you know, you know, has more confidence. Like if they want to get into live sound, and they're not like as afraid of it. A lot of people come up to me and they're like, you know, oh, I'm like just scared of doing live sound. I want to stay in the studio or do that. You know, so yeah. I hope people are less nervous about doing it after listening. Don't be to afraid. Episodes. There's only you know three years worth of episodes to listen to, and then you'll know everything. Yeah, and if you get something wrong on the gig, everyone will blame you. It's all good. Yeah, no, 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 they'll blame us. It's fine. You you can blame us. (laughs) Yeah. It's my my fault. I'm okay with that. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time.